Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season really is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello, Katie. Later, we'll be joined by our film critic, Richard Lawson, who is still over at Cannes, who will uh, give us the latest from there. But in the meantime, we have some pretty exciting news happening right here at Vanity Fair. It's Star Wars Week! Woo! I'm sure you've all had it marked on your calendars, as we have. We have this huge Star Wars feature, the cover of the magazine. Annie Leibovitz went to the set of the movie, as she has for all of the Star Wars movies since The Phantom Menace, and came back with this pretty astonishing portfolio. There's also a cover story written by David Camp, where he interviews Ryan Johnson and Kathleen Kennedy and a lot of members of the cast. There's a lot of talk about Carrie Fisher and her work on the film just a few months before she died. Joanna, you have read the story in detail. You've looked at the photos. You've written a lot of really great companion pieces on on the site. What were you the most excited when you finally uh, got to see the portfolio? It's funny. So, you know, we did a lot of this. This is a lot of cloak and dagger around this, this magazine issue, which is really fun. So I had to go, physically go over to Lucasfilm so they could show me the photos in a little room and then I would leave and, you know, everything would remain a secret. And so when I got there, I started freaking out over Laura Dern, which is sort of who, you know, Laura Dern's new character, Admiral Haldo, hadn't been seen by anyone. We've already talked to this podcast how Laura Dern is having a year and to see her and her beautiful purple hair, I got so excited. And then someone at Lucasfilm was making fun of me because they were like, we think you're biased. Your hair is also purple right now. That's why you like this photo so much. I was like, <laughs> well, maybe. But I felt validated by the fact that the rest of the internet seemed to be as excited as I was to see Laura Dern's hair. So um, yeah, Laura Dern, Benicio Del Toro, never before seen, now in the pages of Any Fair. So there you go. I really enjoy how Benicio Del Toro is so prominently featured and everyone involved will not say a single word about him except maybe his made up initials. Like the, the amount of secrecy around him has me maybe more excited than if they told us what the deal was. And maybe that's the point. I mean, we're going <laughs> to talk about Twin Peaks in a little bit, but that's sort of like the air mystery around Benicio Del Toro is is kind of incredible. They wouldn't let me ask anything about him. And, you know, Ryan, director Ryan Johnson gave Dave Cam a little bit in our in our cover story. But, yeah, I'll be curious if they can make it all the way to the premiere without telling us what this guy's actual name is. So, so of course, immediately everyone's like, well, is it Skywalker? Is it Solo? Is it a name we would recognize? And And who knows? And that's the fun. I just think it's so cool to have, you know, I mean, Annie Leibovitz is is obviously a legend and David Camp is such a great writer. And so he did a beautiful job with this cover story. But it's so cool also to have our, our not so secret weapon in Joanna, who kind of like uh, knows uh, the whole Star Wars world and the whole fan world inside out. So it's been fun. I don't know. I'm just interjecting that. And then I want you guys to keep talking about it because it's all sort of mysterious to me. <laughs> Well, Joanna, there's a post going up, I think today as this, as this episode comes out, where you get really into detail about the lightsaber, which was such a big thing that when you saw these photos, you were like, no, 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 this is a big deal. Uh, what's the, the short version of why this, this picture of Daisy Ridley with the lightsaber is such a big deal? Well, you know, at the end of the last movie, the last shot of The Force Awakens is seems to be Daisy Ridley, Ridley's character looking like she doesn't want this lightsaber and is trying to give it back to Luke. But Annie Leibovitz captured this beautiful sort of hero shot of Daisy Ridley on this uh, Irish cliff with the blue lightsaber, which was originally Anakin Skywalker's lightsaber and then Luke's and all this sort of stuff. And so I did get to get into like nitty gritty detail of talking to Pablo Hidalgo, who's this great keeper of the Star Wars lore over at Lucasfilm about 
the various lightsabers that have existed in the Star Wars films. And also the the weird little trivia about why certain lightsabers are certain colors, like the fact that there was never a purple lightsaber in Star Wars until Samuel Jackson insisted he have a purple lightsaber so he could find himself in crowd scenes. And George Lucas is like, well, okay. I mean, if Samuel Jackson wants a purple lightsaber, he gets one. So there you go. So yeah, it was fun. Yeah, thank you. Basically, thank you, Mike and Katie and the rest of you guys for indulging me and in going very, very granular with some of the Star Wars stuff. It's really oh, it had to be done. Had to be done. <laughs> uh, Mike, what's your favorite of the portraits? Oh, man. I don't know. They're also great. I think I really love that one of Daisy Ridley, actually, just the, the solo shot with the lightsaber. But uh, they are just aesthetically. I mean, it's awesome to see all the Carrie Fishers, obviously incredible. And Mark Hamill's cool. I mean, Chewy is there. I don't know. I, I just grew up with this whole, you know, with this franchise. So it does take me back a little bit. And yet, on the other hand, I'm also like, it's time for a new generation to have toys to play with. Like, I am a, to try to remember that I'm a grown adult sometimes. <laughs> it's cool to see Ryan Johnson and Kathleen Kennedy, too, with, uh, with Carrie and, and Mark Hamill, like, on the set. That's a really cool shot that gives you a sense of what, of, of what it might be like to actually make one of these things. Someone on on Twitter dug up this old Empire Strikes Back photo. I don't know if if Annie Leibovitz was intentionally referencing it, but in that photo, you've got George Lucas, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, all basically an identical pose. Like it really doesn't feel like it could be unintentional of this behind the scenes Empire Strikes Back photo in black and white that looks pretty close to our photo, except we have dogs, so it's probably a little bit better because we've got two cute That's dogs true. in our photo. Dogs but there too. <laughs> but. But I, I was sort of surprised. I, I would be curious if Annie was doing like an intentional homage to I, that photo. I wouldn't speak for Annie, but I know she does a lot of research and and uh, has a very strong sense of history. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if she's if she's quoting there. Yeah, I can't believe that. Uh, you know, obviously Gary the dog, Carrie Fisher's dog, has gotten a lot of deserved attention. But Mark Hamill's daughter's dog Millie. I mean, that's a cute dog. Has been underrated up to this point. I think. No, I mean. This really, you know, you can you can see in David Camp's great cover story that uh, he talks to Mark Hamill a lot. There's a lot of Mark Hamill in this cover story because this really is more than The Force Awakens, the return of Luke, because Luke doesn't say a single word in The Force Awakens. And this is, you know, Luke's story expanding here. And so to see Mark Hamill really dig back into being the leading man in this franchise is kind of fun these years later. And yeah, now it's... Mark and Millie Hamill's time to shine, I guess. And so. there's a really interesting spoiler that Mark Hamill does the Joker laugh throughout the entire Last Jedi movie. <laughs> oh, that's, every time he opens his mouth, comes out Joker laugh. I have to give a real shout out because I had been hearing a lot about these fo photos before I saw them. And I have been uh, reading about how we had these photos from this place called Canto Bite, which is like a uh, Monte Carlo of the Star Wars universe. It, it, they've been comparing it to like the Cantina or Masconada's Bar, but it's like the high class version. And seeing Star Wars formal wear, like all these people dress like they're going to Truman Capote's black and white ball, but in space, is it's unbelievable. I can just spend hours looking at these photos and what everybody's wearing. So the, there's no like characters we know in it, but it's really fun. Well, I imagine that the, that portrait of Laura Dern, like basically I imagine she's in the Canto Bite scene that she's mm -hmm. just stepped stepped off to take her own solo portrait. But yeah, uh, the costume designer is Michael Kaplan, uh, who did The Force Awakens and, and maybe uh, other Star Wars. I don't know, but I don't think so. But the fashion in that gallery, because, you know, we, we had one of those galleries for The Force Awakens, which is basically like a creature gallery, you know, and you get to sort of stare at all the various creatures that they've come up with for this. 
But you're right, because this is not just a creature gallery, but it's like a fashion show. It's it's incredible. So and yeah, it's 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 nothing we've seen before in the Star Wars universe, this sort of upper crust atmosphere. Ryan Johnson, I think, called this Cantobite scene, I think he called it a playground for rich assholes in our cover story. And Pablo Hidalgo sort of told me that these are people who, you know, we, we've been for all these movies watching the government, the rebellion, the, the evil empire. But these are sort of the people who have carved out a high society life for themselves outside of this str- epic struggle between good and evil. And basically, no matter who's on top, they're on top is, is sort of the point of that, which is kind of Hunger Gamesy to me. I, I'm sort of interested in all of that. So... Well, there's more to come from David Camp in particular. He took some of his extra interviews from his cover story that will be running on the site today. You can rejoin his extras that are already up. You know, when we get a Star Wars exclusive, we make sure to uh, make the most of it. So there's a whole lot to see at VF.com so you can obsess over this along with the rest of us. Remind me, Katie Rich or or Mike Hogan, what is the advantage of buying the the print copies that are out in, in the newsstands? First of all, you can put it on a bookshelf or a coffee table or first coffee table and bookshelf, probably, unless you're unless you're weird like that and you want to do, reverse that. Second of all, you can get all four of them if you subscribe along with a commemorative poster. Mm-hmm. Third of all, you can buy whichever one you want on our site, whichever cover you want, or one or two or three or four. Fourth of all, if you buy the digital edition, you can see glowing lightsabers that were done uh, specially by Lucasfilm for for the digital edition, which look really cool, and you can't see them really anywhere else. So there's a whole lot of reasons for if you are a Star Wars uh, anyone anywhere from an enthusiast to uh, an obsessive, um, you should definitely purchase something. I've already talked to a lot of people who have bought all four copies, like pre-ordered for all four copies. That's awesome. And the the glowing lightsaber effect is very cool. And ILM, it was what it was fun about seeing those photos in advance is that they haven't yet put the lightsaber effect on it. So I was seeing those photos with just these sort of like white sticks. And if you look at our one of our behind the scenes videos that we have up on the site, you can see sort of Adam Driver doing these dramatic slashes with no red glow on his lightsaber, and it kind of it looks hilarious. But ILM sort of you know gussied up all our photos, so of course they look beautiful. And to have this cool digital feature, I don't know, I don't. I don't I don't mean to sound too much like a salesman, but I believe in our product. I think it's just, it's really cool what we have. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that we've now, after three years at Vanity Fair, we've gotten you to say, I believe in our product. <laughs> Well, moving on from uh, one thing that Joanna has completely dominated on the site this week to another, Twin Peaks. It is the return of the original mystery show. uh, And Joanna, you as the queen of the mystery shows have done really amazing coverage of it on the site thus far. But I think you know as well as anyone else that this is David Lynch. This is not the kind of show that's going to have puzzles for us to uncover at the very end of it. As many dense layers of meaning as there are in the whole thing. Joanna, I know you're into it. You've written a lot about it. I was really into it. Mike, you just caught it. So maybe I'll jump to you first. How are you feeling about the return of Twin Peaks? I feel so good about it. And and it took a couple of days for me to catch up. So I only watched it last night, which was Tuesday night. And I had been kind of seeing snippets of stuff uh, on Twitter and reading some of the coverage and just thinking, oh boy, am I going to like this or not? I don't know. I didn't want to read too much. But but my brother actually, who is as weird as I am uh, in terms of what we like and don't like, texted me, was like, the new Twin Peaks is really good. And so that put me in a confident frame of mind. 
And I was just in heaven for the first two hours. I really, I just was, I kept thinking to myself, like, there is an aesthetic here that I just feel like you don't see anymore. Whether it, there's there's almost like a, it's somewhere between 80s video art and obviously David Lynch and obviously, and then some Stanley Kubrick and even some experimental theater. That that first scene where the guy is is in that weird building in New York and he's replacing the cards on the camera. It just takes forever. And you're like, I just felt like I was in a, watching like an off, off, off Broadway play. And there's obviously a lot of transcendental meditation going into everything in here, including my, I love when Kyle McLaughlin's, I don't want to spoil too much, but his sort of doppelganger character is going, I don't need anything. You have to understand that about me. I want, which is, I just like, I was just in (laughs) heaven. I was just, I couldn't believe how good it was. And the scary stuff is like really scary. And the weird stuff is really weird. And then and then he's they do the perfect thing, the juxtaposition that was always Twin Peaks to begin with was juxtaposing incredibly terrifying, disturbing stuff with like incredibly mundane sort of cheesy Americana. Uh, I was just I was floored at how happy I was, especially because I don't think uh, Fire Walk With Me is that good. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of Twin Peaks that's that's like not even that good. Um, but as soon as that music kicked in, I would like the music to kick in right now when Jordan uh, works on editing this. Um, but as soon as that music kicked in and the, and the font, that weird green and brown font, I was just like, oh, my God. Here You're we back. are. We're back. Um, when's the last time you watched Fire Walk With Me? About two years ago. I watched the whole thing start to finish, including Firewalk With Me, about two years ago. Because I, I watched Firewalk With Me like last week, actually for the first time. Like I'd seen the series before, but I'd never seen Firewalk With Me. So I actually watched it for my rewatch. I, I rewatched season one. Then I watched Firewalk With Me, which is sort of – it's a prequel anyway. And yeah. then I watched season two. And I actually – didn't dislike Firewalk with me. And I don't know if it's because I just heard that it was terrible for so long. And so I was expecting it to be truly awful. Then I was like, Oh no, this is not uh, bad or, well, or what, but the first time I saw it was in like the late nineties. And I, and I had just watched most of the series. Then it wasn't as easy to actually binge watch something. You had to like find a channel that was playing it and tune right. in every day, every weekday. Right. But I watched Firewalk with me and I did like it a lot then. So I think I had maybe the reverse where I was like, oh, this is going to be good. And then I was like, actually, I mean, the David Bowie stuff, that whole scene is incredible. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that doesn't work as well, I, I thought. I don't know. But how great to see the old characters coming back. And then the casting, it's not, it's, it makes sense to me that the casting directors are the first people credited, at least in the initial run through of the credits, because... The casting is so damn good, was so good the first time and is so good again. And even the false notes are like the right false notes. Maybe that's directing as well. And then I love that David Lynch is credited with sound design. There's just always some <laughs> weird freaking sound going on. There's just like a whooshing weird noise in the background. But but even just seeing like the the sets from the original and the landscapes from the original in like, you know, 4K video or whatever. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking, but I, I was just incredibly enthusiastic. No, I'm so I'm so excited that you're excited. And, you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, I, I went to the premiere, but the the people in the room were either very much in the tank or they were TV critics. I think there was a lot of 
panic among TV critics that the general audience wouldn't like it. You know what I mean? And it didn't get like gangbuster ratings. So who knows like if that, you know, everyone who writes about TV is writing about Twin Peaks, but who knows like how much of America will actually end up watching Twin Peaks. But I think there was just a concern that it was too challenging and too alienating, but to hear so many people really liked the first two episodes, the beginning of the third episode, I think is actually much more challenging, but uh, you know, then the fourth episode is my favorite. So, you know, I just, I think it's, I agree with you, Mike. Like, I'm just really excited. Like, I I felt this enormous relief. I'm like, oh, it's not a disaster. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. We can all just, like, have fun talking about this until September. How nice, you know? Well, so. well you know, Walcott, um, James Walcott had tweeted today, like, it seems to be no chatter about Twin Peaks revival in civilian airspace. The discussion is all online conducted by devotees, to which I replied, but they're the right devotees. But, but you know, I do think that's the... That's okay. I think that's fine for two reasons. One is that the original Twin Peaks, uh, as I recall, was seen by a zillion people at the beginning because they sort of misleadingly advertised it as this um, murder drama. That's how he even snuck it on air in the first place, right? And that, that led to like massive drop-off and him being fired <laughs> uh, and like incredible alienation to millions of people. Now, they were, uh, you know, I, I think that's kind of cool when you can smuggle art into a commercial space. But I think he's doing it again. And what's wonderful is each one feels like a film in many ways, even has those kind of film style credits at the end. And it doesn't do any of the things that everything else on television does now because those are the things that worked. Like everything's gotten so optimized. I just love seeing a guy who's just like, I don't care if that works. Like I'm going to do this my way, which is a really weird way. And probably the wrong way, according to 99% of people, but like, I don't care. This is how I want it. And it's just, it makes me really happy. Yeah, I think I think the wisest thing that Lynch could have done, and I, I feel like he did not think about this at all, but it's working out that way, that by making it so odd at the beginning and kind of jumping around so much and not setting up another Laura Palmer style mystery, it's not going to get the same kind of reaction that like True Detective did, where people get really into theories and like get really attached to what it's going to be about. And then David Lynch, true to form, would not do any of that. I think from the very beginning, he's saying, no, this is the kind of show I'm making. You may never find out what that portal box in New York City is, and you're just going to have to deal with that. And that might limit the audience for it, but I don't think Showtime is necessarily counting on gangbuster ratings to make this worth it for them. I, I th- it feels like a cultural cachet experiment for Showtime, and th- which they're winning. You know, like they took a gamble on this, and I think a lot of people were predicting that they would fall on their faces. And I, d- I don't think they will because, like, the bottom line, it's not a disaster. A lot of people who care about art and TV are going to be talking about it all summer, and that bumps up their brand, even if they don't get as many eyeballs as they would have if they had put, you know, a Ray Donovan spinoff on or something like that. 100%. Like, the worst thing that could have happened here is that David Lynch could have lunged for some kind of commercial viability and sacrificed the vision. And instead, it's... And and Mark Frost, too. I mean, let's not shortchange the co-creator. But I think instead... What they did was stay totally true to the vision. And look, if you if you spent a lot of time with the original series, which which I have, um, you know, it doesn't function on a actual linear. It never functioned really, or it, or it stopped functioning pretty quickly on it on a linear um, format or whatever. And and there's always been an enormous amount of sort of dream logic and probably TM logic in there. So nothing I've seen so far really like departs that much from that. <laughs> 
You know, it's, I'm like watching it and I'm like, yeah, this is the Twin Peaks world. They spent two long seasons, the various people involved in it, building that world. But like now we know what the world is. So you can just kind of reference Bob and, and create like a weird arm tree and have it have a <laughs> doppelganger and have people go in and out of dimensions. Like, it's okay because we already, we did build all that up in the original 25 years ago. Some people misremember the original as being sort of more fun and quirky. I mean, it is fun and quirky. And it was also network television in the early 90s. And this is Showtime now. And so when you see uh, Agent Cooper's doppelganger, hopefully that's, I don't feel like that's a spoiler. It's in the original Twin Peaks. Um, You know, being a bad guy in a uh, cable pay cable sort of way. I think that some people are having a little bit of trouble adjusting to that. Well, uh, the other thing is, have you seen, you know, David Lynch's, first of all, like, have you seen Eraserhead? Because the arm is very uh, reminiscent of that. And or, or also like the later movies where they really did almost get unbearably weird. But it's like, it's a melange of all that stuff. I will say one problem I have with it, not problem, criticism, and I just worry a little bit. I don't know if anyone's been talking about this, is like, he's too many white actors. Like, he should have, that's the one 2017 thing. I think they should have paid a little more attention to, but whatever. I don't want to be a scold and I hate scolds, but like, I, I just, I'm like, it made me anxious. Especially when in the original Twin Peaks, there's a lengthy story where Piper Laurie is in yellow face as an Asian character. And <laughs> when you rewatch that, you're like, Ugh. but then again, in the original Twin Peaks, you've got David Duchovny as his character, trans character, Denise, and it's actually treated beautifully in the early nineties. And you're like, well, <laughs> how did this, how did this happen? I agree with you. And in, in casting wise, Famously, this revival has about 200 guest stars or something like that. And, you know, some of the, you know, Ashley Judd crops up for two seconds in, I think, is the first episode. And I would not be surprised if that's all we see of Ashley Judd. I feel like we're going to get weird things like that, where it's just like Ashley Judd wanted to have three lines on the new Twin Peaks. And so she does. My favorite one, which is very Vanity Fair, is Cornelia Guest. Yes. Uh, and- <laughs> With that very weird, like, but it's that perfect kind of off performance that David Lynch knows how to get or knows that he wants or whatever. I don't know. She's like, because she's not really in, you know, she's she's more of a socialite and other things than an actress, but it works. For some reason, it works perfectly. I will cop to be one, one of the people who misses kind of the quirkier, more soap opera elements of Twin Peaks. I thought the Cornelia Guest stuff with the Matthew Lillard stuff, that whole plot line felt more like the way I remember Twin Peaks than yeah. anything else. Maybe this is just a personal thing, but I feel like Kyle McLaughlin is so much better at being the buttoned up kind of goody two shoes FBI agent Cooper than the evil Bob Cooper. And I got a little sick of that. I mean, and Joanna, you rightly pointed out that like the pay cable version of that violence is very accurate to what the character would be, but I just don't, I want to see Kyle McLaughlin be the Dale Cooper. I know. So I'm definitely kind of hoping it maybe settles either into the town of Twin Peaks more or into the South Dakota thing. I mean, bring on the weirdness, like all the red, the Black Lodge stuff is wonderful, but I do, I want some character to it. And I think in the third and fourth episodes, which are now on the Showtime app, I maybe I'll get some more of that because I know there's at least uh, an appearance of a, uh, of a child of two characters uh, that I want to see. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. I can't wait for us to talk about that. But um but yeah, no, I actually think that David Lynch is intentionally messing with our expectations of what we think we want to see from Kyle MacLachlan. Um, not just like what he what he does with Agent Cooper going forward, which no spoilers. Uh, Kyle MacLachlan actually plays a third character. I mean, he's just sort of like you want to see Agent Dale Cooper eat pie and drink coffee. Sorry, that's not what we're doing. This is not Gilmore Girls: A Year in the Life. This is 
Twin Peaks The Return. We're not like, you know, playing the old hits you know and love. But it feels like it's headed to, you know, hopefully that's where we're going to get at the end. This is the restoration. I, I don't know. I mean, that's my that's what I have in mind here. It might be. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. he's going to find his way out of the Black Lodge, etc. But we shall see. I don't know. Um, I have a question for you, Joanna, because you always know this stuff. Is was a lot of the soap opera e kind of meandering mid season, mid second season stuff, which I actually rather enjoyed. Isn't a lot of that when David Lynch was uh, in exile? David Lynch basically disavows Twin Peaks uh, from the time around mid season two when the network forced them to reveal who the killer was, uh, and and we'll leave that a mystery in case you guys want to go back and rewatch. But the back half of season two, he basically disavows. He has like said in interviews, like I didn't even watch it. What a what a crock. Um, but then he came back and did the finale. So right. if, he did the if, really if crazy Black Lodge finale. Yeah. So if yeah. you're rewatching Twin Peaks, like, you know, I would even say some people could just like not if they didn't want to watch the back half with like Billy Zane and all the other stuff that happens and James on the road. But Mike would disagree with me because he likes it. So I thought it was um, kind of fun. And but that is to me like the loosest sort of like that's the that's the closest Twin Peaks got to just like, oh, I want to escape to this world. It was almost like a there was like bordering on a Friday Night Lights, but really fucking weird. The thing I will say that's been fun for people watching Twin Peaks for the first time who have never seen it is that they didn't realize how much of a nighttime soap it is and how how much it owes to like Dynasty and Dallas and all sorts yeah. of stuff. So you have like a lot of melodramatic overacting. Well, and I think I always felt that the that there was a rationale, an artistic rationale for the kind of soapiness, which is that he was smuggling into your living room this dark and underbelly and this study of evil. But he was going to do it in in a form that was, you know, recognizable and that people had kind of come to embrace without thinking too much about it. I don't know. Maybe I give him too much credit. I mean, I think if you look at stuff he was making at the time, though, like both both Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart have total elements of that kind of melodrama yeah. that it, he's like adding his weird twist onto. So and he I clearly think, loves it sort of also un, un, uh, ironically, too, I think. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The other thing we should we should say about the Twin Peaks revival that it's strangely a number of memorable Twin Peaks actors passed away sort of right around and during this revival. So Catherine Coulson, who played the log lady, filmed her scenes in 2015, like before she passed away in 2015 of cancer. Um, Miguel Ferrer, who passed away January 2017, he actually has a lot to do, it looks like, in this season. Um, so it's really lovely to see him back because he was a favorite part of the original series for me and and to see to have this performance from him and then there's this mystery around whether or not david bowie actually david bowie was supposed to be in the revival there's one interview that says maybe he didn't do it but there's so little interviews that there's still a question of like will actually david bowie surprisingly show up as agent phil jeffries in this season of twin peaks but these weird specters that's almost like very twin peaksian right to have these weird specters of departed actors sort of around the fringes of the action so you can always just have them show up in the glass cube you know flicker for a bit and disappear well they did that oh you haven't yeah we'll talk about that later okay Okay. (laughs) the cube comes back thank god uh yeah also just the fact that this is going to be on until September, that this is 18 episodes, like this is event TV of a length that oh. we have really not seen in a long time. So we have a whole summer of Twin Peaks to look forward I am to. so happy. It's just, I, was- I feel <laughs> replenished on, on so many levels. I just needed this really badly. 
as you might have guessed, I am doing a podcast about this called Peaks TV. But when when we were sort of trying to figure out, do we really want to do this until September? That feels like a, a life away from now. And now I'm just like full of excitement and energy to do it until September. So, I mean, Joanna, Game of Thrones is going to begin and end while you're still doing. <laughs> I know. I know, and I'm almost like Game of Thrones. What? I, that's I'm kidding. I'm excited for Game of Thrones. But, How uh, dare you? Are they going to keep dropping the episodes uh, early like this, or do we have any idea? So this upcoming weekend, Memorial Day weekend, they're airing three and four, even though they already stream them on the line. And then the rest of the season, the episodes will drop on Sunday nights one at a time, just like in ye olde times. And then I think the finale is two episodes together, like a two hour event. But they aren't. This is just a weird launch experiment because Showtime is really trying to drive people to their online platforms. So they did it with Twin Peaks. They, they're they going to do it with Star Trek. They did it with The Good Fight. This is like a thing that CBS slash Showtime is really trying to push. So that's why the release is so weird. But David Lynch apparently really insisted, like, he didn't want a binge model. He wants one episode per week. This is how he wants people to enjoy his show. Let's let the people watch it one episode at a time. <laughs> oh, my God. It's my new favorite. Can you please... <laughs> Dress up as Agent Gordon Cole for Halloween. Thank That's you. a great Halloween. What's costume. that, Joanna? Can't hear. Can't hear you. <laughs> so now we're going to catch up with Richard, who is still in France. Uh, I don't know when your visa runs out, Richard, but it looks like you're going to see every movie available at Cannes before you come home. Yeah, I think I'm just going to live here now. You know, it seems like a nice way of life. They uh, just, you know, they're sunny and warm. So good food. I think I'm just going to stay. Cannes is wrapping up, sort of. It's a long festival. And unlike a lot of them, uh, good stuff premieres throughout. So uh, as we're speaking to you, the latest movie you saw is the Sofia Coppola movie, which I think was one of our most anticipated. So maybe let's start by hearing about that. Yeah. If people listened last week, I mentioned that when I got here on the ground, there was some kind of chatter quietly that that the movie wasn't very good, that Nicole Kidman wasn't doing press for it, all this kind of stuff. So I sort of had written it off almost. And then I saw it this morning um, and it's so good. It's like, it's really fun. And like, I I had been feeling a little tired and a little de-energized and honestly, like a little bit underwhelmed by some of the movies. And it just, this totally, you know, I, I feel renewed. That sounds like a Sofia Coppola superpower, but also like fun is not usually something I think of with her movies. I kind of imagine this as being very dreamy and Southern Gothic and uh, what, so what's the, where does the fun come in? It's fun. Well, it's, it's only 94 minutes long. It doesn't have the kind of like rambling dreaminess of her other movies. It's much more, it's much more still and sort of looks like, you know, kind of a painting, but and so it's this dark story about, you know, Colin Farrell is this um, Civil War soldier from the Union who ends up at this girls boarding school in, the, in Virginia. So they're kind of Confederate loyalists and he's injured. And so they take him in and things kind of go awry from there. So it has a grim kind of undertow to it, but it's it's kind of like wickedly funny. Like Nicole Kidman will kind of do a little raised eyebrows or, you know, various things like that that are just like, it just make it like a really good time. And at this festival this year in particular, I think obviously with various political <laughs> calamities happening around the world in the past few years, um, a lot of the movies are very, you know, dour and allegorical about you know, European politics and things like that. So this, while, while, while sinister in its way, like, it's just like, it was great to have fun at a movie. 
So let's hear more about Nicole Kidman, who we've been calling the queen of can because she has so many movies out there. You said she's doing some kind of fun stuff in The Beguiled. Is this her best performance? One of them? Or can you just rank the Nicoles of can? You know, she's in so she's in Top of the Lake, China Girl, which is the second season of um, Jane Campion's show with Elizabeth Moss, which I saw two episodes of yesterday. And she's great in that with this kind of funny, gray, curly wig. She's in uh, How to Talk to Girls at Parties, which is John Cameron Mitchell's movie playing this kind of like queen mother of this punk scene in, in a kind of down and out town in England. And then she's in The Killing of a Sacred Deer, the Yorgos Lanthimos. She's excellent in all of them, as she always is. I would say that my favorite is probably her in The Beguiled, just because she has some moments that really just like are classic Nicole kind of like iciness, but also a kind of intensity. So I liked her in that. But but in China Girl, it's 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 a subtler kind of more, it's it's a little bit less, relies less heavily on, you know, her sort of Nicole Kidman tricks. So she is really good in that too. I like this uh, wig trend of Nicole's. You know, the, uh, Holly Hunter had the gray one in the first season of Top of the Lake. So I, I like what Jane Campion's doing here. Richard, if uh, if a Sundance classic movie that feels better at the festival is one, I don't actually know why. It's like kind of quirky and everybody's lightheaded from the uh, how high up they are in the mountains. Is the can one just one that isn't like relentlessly dreary and reminding you about the fact that life is kind of horrible and existence has no meaning? Yeah, I, I think especially this year, that is uh, <laughs> that is definitely the case. Um, you know, there was another, you know, because between a movie like, um, which is the front runner for the Palme d'Or, um, Loveless, which is this Russian allegorical movie about a child who goes missing, but it's really about the amorality of Russian, of contemporary Russia. And it's beautifully shot and well acted, but boy, it's, it's difficult. And, you know, The Killing of Sacred Deer, the Yorgos Lanthimos film is about all kinds of grim, horrible things. The Michael Haneke movie, unsurprisingly, is really depressing. So it was nice to see The Beguiled and and kind of just like laugh and, and feel kind of excited. And then the movie ends after 90 minutes and you're done, you know. But there was another movie I saw uh, recently here that, um, or two actually, that, that had a lighter touch, which were really welcome. And th- they were in the director's Fortnite sidebar, which happens a little further down the croissette from, from the Palais. Uh, and the first one was Sean Baker's new movie, The Florida Project. He made Tangerine a couple years ago, and it was sort of a big festival hit. And so I was really eager to see what he does next. And this is set in Florida, obviously, kind of in the shadow of Disney World, these people who live in motels and are kind of really hand-to-mouth, you know, living. And it's, it focuses on a six-year-old girl who's very funny and cute and, and, and in a very natural way, not not kid actory at all, and her friends and her mom. And it's sad in the end a little bit, but kind of joyful at the same time. But it was just nice. It's bright. It moves. It it, it felt that felt really good. And I think that movie we should all put on our um, our radar for, you know, I don't know, maybe not independent spirit awards, certainly. And then the other movie was Juliette Binoche in a, in a Claire Denis directed romantic comedy called Let the Sunshine In, where she it's kind of vignette. She goes on a series of dates with guys and they, you know, things kind of fall apart and she grieves that and then moves on. But it's just like really fun to see Juliette Binoche in this, you know, sparkling kind of Parisian romantic mode rather than dealing with some kind of tragedy or something. Um, and then there's this wonderful closing scene over the end credits with Gerard Depardieu that's like hysterically funny. Well, the French found it hysterically funny. I, I think that I, something was lost in translation, <laughs> but I, 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 they were laughing at things. I was like, oh, ha, 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 right. Yeah, <laughs> I get that. It's just like wordplay things. I think the subtitles don't really pick up on. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it was nice I mean, to they see do love things. They do love Jerry Lewis. Uh, so That's it's important true. to remember. Yeah. Now, wait, so let me just get this straight. So the movie about the dead, broke people living in like the horrifying shadow of, of Walt Disney World was one of the brighter movies that you saw at Cannes. That was one of like the relief. That was like the comic relief. 
Yes, this portrait of, <laughs> you know, the American underclass struggling to survive. Yeah, yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, in, in the shadow of this, off, you know. <laughs> uh, starvation in the shadow of, like, the, the mouse, the freaky mouse empire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, I mean, you know, so it just kind of, um, for people who've seen Tangerine, you know, this won't surprise them. It just kind of keeps moving at this bright kind of fun clip. And um, <laughs> the kids are genuinely... Great. And then, you know, then it takes a darker turn at the end, but it, but it doesn't feel um, manipulative or sort of overwrought. It feels very realistic, very true to the sort of milieu of the movie. So you kind of don't leave feeling as depressed as you might after, you know, a somber two and a half hour Russian movie about <laughs> you know, moral rot. I think it sounds good. I'm excited to see it. By the time you leave Candle, have handed out all the awards. I think that happens on Sunday. Is there like a an odds-on favorite for the Palme d'Or or any of the big prizes we'll be hearing about this weekend? Well, I mentioned Loveless, which is this Russian film. That screened early in the festival, so I don't know if that will sort of hobble its chances at all. Um, I should actually go back and look and see like when Palme d'Or, past Palme d'Or winners screened during the festival. But So that's high up on a lot of people's lists. And I would say, pretty excitingly, the, the, the next highest might be... This movie that I think I'd mentioned last week called, um, well, it was called 120 Beats Per Minute. It's now just called Beats Per Minute. It's a movie from Robert Campillo, who uh, writes a lot of movies with Laurent Kente and made his own movie called Eastern Boys a few years ago that was great. Anyway, it's about ACT UP Paris. So it's about the kind of AIDS activism um, of the early 90s, but not in New York, which is a story we've seen a lot before, but in Paris. And it's wonderful. It's a really beautiful, exquisitely made and told film um, that, you know, is political and sort of docudrama-esque, but also this beautiful and tragic love story, and it's artfully made. So yeah, I, I'm really excited that people have responded to that so well, and I think the thinking is that it's political, it's not uplifting, exa- or it's, it's hopeful, it's, it's sad, but it's also hopeful. It's French, which helps, and um, it's, you know, gay in theme, and Pedro Almodovar is the head of the jury, so, and he's gay, and makes a lot of films about that, so that, that that could all work to to beats per minute's advantage. So I mean, people are now saying the beguiled too because the screening went very well this morning. But but yeah, we'll see. With the jury, we haven't really gotten any suggestion about what how the how the judges are thinking or anything like that. It's a pretty closed off group. That you know, um, although there was during the press conference for the Cannes jury uh, at the beginning of the festival, Will Smith was making jokes about, oh man, I have to wake up at eight thirty in the morning and see twenty movies, and he was you know kind of just like saying it was sort of a drag to be doing all the work and it did not go over well because <laughs> because they take this very seriously obviously and they don't you know they don't want anyone thinking that one of the judges in the main competition is sort of doesn't, sort of doesn't want to be there. I wanted to go back to uh, Beats Per Minute for a second because there was something really interesting that you tweeted about kind of talking about how there are some critics who were discounting the importance of sex in it, which I think is really interesting because most of the people who are reviewing movies at Cannes, as in everywhere, are straight white guys. Do you feel like there's there's a narrative there that's that's getting overshadowed in this film? Yeah, I think I was maybe being a little uh, <laughs> quick to judge on that tweet. Um, I did go back. Justin Chang, who former Variety critic now at the LA Times, who's a wonderful writer and a really good thinker, um, he did bring up the the topic of the sex. And but the reason I mentioned it in the tweet was that you know a lot we see we've seen a lot of sort of very pious, very polite movies about the gay experience you know made in America, um, where we don't see that aspect of gay men's lives, which you know let's be honest is a is a is a big part of of people's lives. And this movie does not shy away from anything, but it's done not in a sort of 
titillating sort of way. It's, it's very, it's artful and it's, um, it's emotional. And I just really appreciated that the movie showed that aspect of people, even though they were sick and, you know, with a sexually transmitted disease, but that they kind of kept on living. So, and then I noticed after the fact, a lot of the straight white critics who had reviewed it sort of talked more about the politics and really barely mentioned how revolutionary, um, its depictions of sort of sex and, and gay intimacy are, um, you know, and that said, I'm, uh, unfortunately, I feel like all of that hobbles the movie's chances of, you know, getting a foreign language Oscar nomination or, you know, anything because it is uh, pretty graphic. I, I would like this to be a new um, series on the podcast where somebody has to defend a tweet that they did. <laughs> not that any oh. of us have ever tweeted something that wasn't totally well thought out and reasoned, but I, I do kind of, I think that could be something, our, our like mean tweets. A uh, tweet court. Yeah. Tweet court. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, to, to loop you in, Mike, uh, you were at Cannes very briefly for, uh, you know, the event of the season. I think it's the only thing anyone at Cannes ever wants to do, which is the Vanity Fair Cannes party. So uh, what was that like, guys? Uh, it was really great. I uh, I got to sit uh, at dinner with Simon Curtis, who directed My Week with Marilyn and who has a film coming out that he's working on about uh, the A.A. Milne, who created Winnie the Pooh and Christopher Robbins and all that. So that was really fun and felt very kind of cineast. And then there was a really fabulous party with all kinds of, you know, big celebrities, but also people like Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and Al Gore, and uh, also people like a bunch of uh, European aristos, like, you know, people like Lapo, Arky Busson and, you know, Charlotte Kazaragi and all kinds of names like that. But, but, and then big, big A-list stars. And it was fun to, as always, watch uh, those big celebrities kind of interact. And you're like, oh, Greta Gerwig and, you know, well, um, Julianne Moore, like, that's cool. I wonder what they're talking about. And Sama Hayek was there with her billionaire husband. And it was just all incredibly glamorous. We had a gorgeous night. Sometimes we don't get the best. We haven't always had the best weather there. But this was an absolutely picture-perfect night. And Richard and uh, and Julie Miller and Rebecca Keegan were all on the case of reporting. I think you guys put more thought into that write-up. Everybody go read the write-up because it was really an absolute work of art that was created by three you know, I would say geniuses in their prime. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it was fun to write. And, you know, doing that just involves a lot of kind of moving through the crowd, sort of, you know, a silent observer, which is always nice to do. Um, Will Smith was there and he, he was getting a lot of attention. So I kind of like, saw, you know, sort of saw who was who wanted to come kiss the ring. And I got to have myself personally a five-minute conversation with Al Gore, who was incredibly nice and got up from his chair, put his cigar down and looked me in the eyes, asked me what I did, said, asked me about my job. And, you know, I told him something about my mom had made, uh, when in 1992, when the election was happening, my mom had a party at the house and, and made um, like roast quail, you know, this damn quail. Uh, and I told Al Gore that for some reason, and he he laughed. So so I made Al Gore laugh. It was a real thrill, and I um, thank you to Vanity Fair for allowing that moment to happen. Oh, and at the end of the night, too, uh, Tilda Swinton was leading a giant dance party to the Talking Heads. Um, yes. So just yeah. just kind of standing back and beholding that was pretty much worth the price of admission. Although, I mean, the whole thing was was really incredible. DJ Mateo was really holding it down, uh, as he always does. So it was it was a cool night and uh, in incredibly beautiful night. I think I think people had a really good time. Does yeah, anyone have a better time at Cannes than Tilda Swinton? It doesn't seem so. I mean, yeah, she well, she and the entire Okja cast they were everywhere. They had Netflix had its own party. Um, 
the following night at a villa uh, in Cannes. And they were all there and all hanging out and seemingly having a great time. And Tilda's walking around with her very handsome boyfriend. And yeah, I mean, they're just doing something right. And and they were they had reason to be celebratory, you know, because Oak Show was really well received and by most critics, including myself. And uh, there was a catastrophe at the beginning of the press screening where they had the, as- the aspect ratio wrong or something or the framing wrong. And so everyone was booing and hissing until they restarted the movie and then they booed the Netflix logo for a second time and all that stuff. But then at the end, people were fans of the movie. So I think that, at the, you know, it didn't look touch and go there, but I think Netflix kind of won the day. And then their second movie, The Meyerowitz Stories, was really well received as well. Well, Richard, we'll let you get back to uh, sitting on the beach or drinking champagne or whatever, whatever it is you do in France. It just seems so glamorous and not at all hard work. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I'm going to go do right now is go stand in line for an hour for a two and a half hour long Russian movie about prisons. So nice. Yay. <laughs> Vive la France. Fun. <laughs> well, we'll be excited to have you back in stateside. But in the meantime, enjoy it. All right. Thanks, guys. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks as always for listening. And don't forget to find us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us and tell everybody where to find us. Uh, obviously, it's going to be a really interesting summer between Twin Peaks and Game of Thrones and all these canned movies. So uh, what off season? It's award season all year round. So tell people to listen. You can find us all at VanityFair.com, which is also where you can find a whole bunch of amazing Star Wars photos. Uh, you can find us all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard, you know where to find him. He's at Rylaws. This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell, and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for our best recommendation of how to enjoy Little Gold Men goes to David Lynch. Oh, wait, I mean Mike Hogan. Let's let the people watch it one episode at a time.